Hey, I want to welcome first just some people, if I could. I want to take a second to welcome our Lancaster family tuning in live. Come on, Lithopolis. We're pumped. We're excited. If you're watching this online, and there's another special group of people that I want to recognize right now that are tuning in live. It's our disaster relief team that went to North Carolina to help after all the disaster uh, that kind of came through there in the storms. We had a team of people that went down. Not only did we give thousands of dollars to Samaritan's Purse, but we sent a team of people who've been helping and the relief efforts down there, they're on their way back. Can we just show them some love, appreciation? You guys, be safe driving home, man. Thanks for representing our church well. Hey, I want to welcome you. If you are new to our church, man, this, you, you came in a great series. We're right in the middle of a series of talks called Judge and Jury. We're talking about judgmental people. You know any? Come on, turn to the person next to you because you're looking at one right there. Come on, say you're a little judgmental. I see the way you were looking at me during worship. Anyways, we're talking about judgmental people, and here's why. We need to recognize something, that the longer that we are in an environment like church where we're constantly being told about morality, the more likely it is that we are to become judgmental people. Let me say it to you this way. The more you become aware morally, okay? In other words, the more you become morally aware, the more you become aware of others who aren't moral. Did I lose you a little bit on that? I know I did. It was a little tongue twister. I missed you. In other words, kind of the more you become aware of your own issues and our own morality and failures, the more you become aware of other people's. And sometimes that turns into us being a bit judgmental. Now, I know that it's not just in the church, okay? I, I, my daughters came to me and one of them said after last week, they're like, hey, you know who's really judgmental? People who don't go to church, they're also really judgmental. I said, I get it, I know. We all judge all the time. The thing is, we're not, I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to this community. So we're gonna deal with our own junk, all right? We'll let the world deal with that. We're gonna deal with our own junk. And so we're talking about this idea of being judgmental because sometimes when, when we're judgmental, it tends to put us in a different place or on a different side than someone else. If there's anything I think about sides, I, I can't help but think about the season we just came out of. Is there anybody today who is so thankful the midterm elections are over? Can I get a witness? Hello. It's so annoying. The constant smear ads, the postcards that is a waste of money. You don't need to send it to me. The text messages. Did any of you get texted by parties trying to, I mean, like, really? How'd you get my number? Like, I, I just, th there's something about our political system, our political season at least, that tends to kind of divide more than unify. You ever notice that? I mean, we could be doing okay, and then all of a sudden, man, political season comes, and all of a sudden it's right against left, it's red versus blue, everybody gets so judgmental, I mean, war kind of seems to break out in social media, and it kind of just feels like in, in all of this that it's like we got to pick a side. What side are you on? And it gets ugly. It gets really, really ugly. In fact, there's a new thing today, a new concept in politics. I don't know if you ever heard this term. It's called identity politics. And here's what it basically means. People today so much identify with their political view that, it, that really if you disagree with them politically, it means you don't like them personally. 
It's identity politics. It's a mess. It's like, well, can't we just agree to not agree? Can't we disagree? No, because all of a sudden now it's like you, you are on the other side of me, and it feels like we're, we're taking sides. You know, you know the, the, there's a tension when it comes to a season like this to, to pick sides. Like, like, like here's the tension, right? Are you, are you Fox or CNN? That's the a, that's a, that's a sides, right? Which one do you watch? It tells a lot. Are you liberal or are you conservative? Right? Are you red or are you blue? Are you for white collar or for blue collar? That's what it feels like, right? Socialism, capitalism, pick a side. And, and, and so, man, I'm so glad to be over that because there's just something about this picking sides that I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like it. But I must say, uh, growing up in the church, I also feel like that there's an internal tension when it comes to the church and the world to pick a side. Have you ever felt that? Especially those of you that grew up in church like I did. And, and you heard people quoting verses to you all the time. Uh, uh, there was a verse that I would hear quoted all the time, and I understand the heart behind it, but, but the way in which it was used, I feel like was a misapplication. And that is this, that we are to be in the world, but not, so y'all know it, right? We've heard that. And I get that. I get the heart of that. We are to be different because of what Christ has done for us. But, but sometimes I also feel like that, that, that mantra, that verse has kind of created a tension in within me that it becomes us versus them. We're in the church. We're the good people. <laughs> you don't got a church. You're in the world. You're the bad people. It creates a tension in us where we begin to see each other as sides. And it can create this, this, this thing. Now listen, it's not just in the church and those outside the church, but let me tell you this. I have felt that same tension within the church. Like I, I grew up in a time where it felt like that if you didn't think the same way or you didn't believe or you didn't interpret the Bible, in other words, it wasn't just all about morality but also theology that would divide us. You know, you know denominational wars. Oh yeah, you're Catholic, we're Protestant. I don't believe that. That's not, I, I remember. I remember some of these, these concepts. That, and, and here's what it's done. It's created dichotomies out of things and forced us to take sides. These dichotomies. You, you know what I'm talking about. Let, let me give you a dichotomy that I, I remember hearing a lot. I still hear it once in a while. Are you NIV or KJV? Because that's the only truly inspired translation of the word of God. Like that, that's, that's one I've heard a lot in the church. It separates us. It creates sides. It creates sides, right? Or, 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 or things like this. Um, I always hate the fact that this tends to be put on different sides. I preached an entire sermon on this this year because I don't think you have to choose sides, but I've always been told, faith or science, choose a side, right? Either you're a person of faith you trust the Bible, or you're a, someone of science, and you go with facts, but, but there can't, can they coexist? I believe that you can. But this is what we've been told. Choose a side. Creation or evolution, which is it? Choose a side. Or, or it gets even deeper in some theological circles. You may not care about this, but I, I've heard this one before a lot, right? Man's free will, or God is sovereign, but both can't be true. You heard that one? Some of you are looking at me like, yeah, I don't even know what you're talking about. Don't just go with it. 
Calvinism or Arminianism, pick a side. Which are you? You know, the, the, the sides. Are, here, here's one. This is a dichotomy that always got me. I've had people ask this before, right? Are you a church of evangelism or discipleship? Do you care about reaching people who are far from God? Or do you just care about helping people grow in their faith? Do you know what I say to that all the time? Why can't we be about both? Why has it got to be one or the other? Why does it always pick a side? Why is it are you chocolate or you're vanilla? Sometimes I want to say, give me a twist. I like them both. A little crunch coat on or chocolate. I like it. No, I don't know why I said that. but I consider these dumb dichotomies. What I'm saying is that internal tension that we feel that has caused us to take sides. Are you for what's good in this earth or are you for the people of the earth? Huh? And by the way, one of the dumbest dichotomies, I think, and the one thing that creates more division and creates more judgmental Christians than any other dichotomy is this dichotomy of truth or grace. You heard that one? Truth or grace? Are you someone who stands for the truth? Or are you someone who's all about grace? Which is it? Which is it? Are you, are you a church of grace or a church of truth? We've been asked that by people before. We've had people, you know, if you ever heard somebody go, I'm just looking for a church of grace. Let me tell you what someone says when they say, I'm looking for a church of grace. What they're saying is, I'm looking for a church where the primary and maybe the sole message is all about God's grace, God's love, God is love, God is merciful, God is gracious, and, and God loves you. And listen, all of that is true. But the reason why somebody wants just a church of grace is usually because they want to justify their sinful behavior or lifestyle, and they don't want anything to confront what's actually going on in their life. And so they say, I'm looking for a church of grace. I get that. I get that. And then there are some that look for a church of truth. Now, by the way, those are the self-righteous, holier-than-thou, religious nuts that want a church of truth. You know a church of truth? The church of truth is one, all they do is march around the truth, and they don't care about the person, and all they do is go and they preach fire, hell, and brimstone, and they're saying things like, you better get right or you're going to get left. You better turn or you're going to burn, you know. And I don't know if you've ever been to a church like that. Hello. And, and that's the church of truth. I've been asked before this question. What kind of church are we? What's Crossroads? What is this church? Are, are, are we a church of truth? Or are we a church of grace? And my answer is yes. Why is it got to be a dichotomy? I think that's dumb. And the reason why we see it that way is because a lot of us have, have bought into a judgmental spirit. Uh, I'm good, a vertical morality that looks nothing, if I could say this so gently, like Jesus. We've got a lot of Christians in our world today that look nothing like Christ. Can I, can I show you a, a depiction of Jesus today? If I could just kind of point to this one uh, dichotomy that is tend to use to create division and see really way, the way Jesus was is it, found in John chapter 1. Let me read this one verse to you. John chapter 1, verse 14. It's an incredible verse. And John, who was a very close and dear friend of Jesus's, 
This is John who saw Jesus crucified, was standing there with Jesus' mom. Saw them take his lifeless body off of the cross and stick it into a tomb. And the same John is the one who saw Jesus face to face, risen from the dead. And later, John would, would take a, an account or write a depiction of who Jesus was. And the way right out of the gate he describes Jesus, this is interesting, is the first way he describes him is the word. Now, this is a unique way, but what he was trying to say is that he came from the Father, and everything he spoke is what the Father would speak. He was like the word of God to us. And John described Jesus in John 1 verse 14 this way. He said this, the word became flesh. God put on skin and bones, and he, and he made his dwelling among us. That's the most beautiful thing ever. That is the story of Christmas, by the way, that Jesus came to us. It says this, we have seen his glory. We've seen every part of it. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. How? Please help me out today. This is how John describes him. said that he came full of what? He came full of grace and, come on, let's say it again out loud. Came full of grace and truth. This is how John saw Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus was about truth, right? I mean, if anybody knew truth, it was Jesus. If anybody would come on the side of truth, it would be Jesus. Even Jesus himself said, when, when Pilate was questioning him right before he was crucified, Jesus said, it was for the very reason that I came, so that you could know truth. Jesus was all about truth, yes. John got to hear him preach all the time. He said, yeah, he, he, was, he was all about truth. But then John would say, if you actually got to know him, and I think this is our disadvantage, if you actually got to be around him, if you could have looked into his eyes, if you could have looked at the way he looked at others that everybody would walk away from, if you could have looked and saw what I saw and how he touched people that no one else would touch, the way, the way he was with others, you would have said he's also full of grace. Truth or grace, which, which one? Which, what are we to be? I think Jesus came to show us that we could actually be both. You, could, you can live a life that is full of grace and is full of truth. And if we, as his followers in this community, are going to get to a place where we are not seen as judgmental, critical, hypocritical people, this is the key. We need to learn what it means to live full of grace and truth. In fact, I want to share a story with you from, from the same gospel, John. If you just skip forward a few chapters, if you've got your Bible, to John chapter 8. I want to share a story that I think so beautifully illustrates how we can live full of grace and truth. How do I not, like, uh, how do I not let down my standard of truth, but at the same time see and love people the way Jesus would? That's what I want to know. That's what I want to be. In John chapter 8, let me set up the story by reading it in verse 2. It says this, At dawn, he, that's Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, which was a pretty nice thing to do. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. There wasn't just a witness, and I think she's cheating on him. She was caught red-handed. Think about that. In verse 5, it says, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
Now, what do you say? It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, it says, he, he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, I, I want to I picture the scene for a moment because I never want to overlook the moment. Here they are in the temple courts, and so basically they're having church, okay? They're in the courtyard where women were allowed, Gentiles were allowed to come. And, and it says that Jesus shows up and walks into the temple courts, and the moment he does, everybody flocks around him to hear him speak. Why? Because he's full of truth. And so everybody gathers, imagine this crowd of people gather around, and Jesus is preaching. Oh, my God. I'm telling you, if John were to give us the rest of the details, it was one of his better sermons. People were laughing. It was so good. It was so on point. People were connecting. And he's in the middle of preaching one of his best sermons ever when all of a sudden a loud commotion happens at the gate. A bunch of people, an angry crowd of men come in, they're shouting and they're yelling, and they come in and they're dragging. Now, this is the way I picture it. I know John didn't give us this detail, but I can't imagine this woman just kind of walked along gently with him. But I picture that they're dragging her maybe by her hair, kicking and screaming the whole way into the temple courts, and they come right up, right where Jesus is preaching. Everybody parts the ways, and they stick her right in front of Jesus. What do you say about this woman caught in the act of adultery, right in the middle of his sermon. Can I just tell you something? Don't ever try that with me. No, I'm serious. Like, I am not as full of grace as Jesus is. Hello? I'm just telling you, like, don't try that with me because I got a microphone. I'm going to win. You're probably going to get ripped one. And then, on top of that, we got a safety team around here. I don't know where they are. They might take you out thinking you're a threat. So don't do that with me, okay? But imagine the middle of his sermon. What's so important? We got to interrupt Jesus, interrupt him, and they bring this woman, and they stick her in front, and we call her red-handed. Now, I've always had this question in the back of my mind. Where's the guy? Anybody else wonder that? Come on, ladies, give me an amen. If you're going, where's the guy? It takes two to tango. Where's the guy? Why is it that the woman is drugged in front of all these men? Come on. They knew the law. If they caught her red-handed, they could have enacted on it. But no, they bring her in there so they can publicly shame her, so that they can try to trick Jesus, but there's no mention of the guy. And I don't know what they did. I know this is conjecture, but I also see that it also seems to signify or seems to represent the way highly religious people tend to be, which is they're very vocal about certain people, certain groups, certain sins, and yet remain kind of silent about other ones. Do you know what I'm talking about? Got a real problem. Some are very condemning of homosexuality, but they say nothing about promiscuity. They're going to say something about all that music and all the message, and that's vulgar, but they say nothing about the gossip going on in their own circle. That's what the self-righteous like to do. We like to point, and I'm going to pick you, and I don't like you, and you, I don't struggle with this. And, and so they, they drag her before Jesus, and they, they really ask Jesus, take a side. Pick a side. This is an impossible situation, by the way, if you're Jesus. Everybody's looking at you. Pick a side, Jesus. Are you for the law? Or are you for her? That, that was the dichotomy. Are you for the truth? Doing what's right, Moses. Or are you for this woman? 
Which is it? To me, that's, that's kind of an impossible question to ask, isn't it? Have you ever been asked an impossible question? You ever been put in an impossible situation where you got to take sides? I have. I've been, I've been put in that kind of situation by my own daughters. Maybe, maybe you've had this, but I, I remember this moment one time that I had both of my daughters were in the kitchen together with me, and my youngest daughter asked me this question. You can tell they had been talking about it. Hey, Daddy, which one of us do you love the most? You ever, you ever, you ever been asked that before? Which one's your favorite, Dad? Huh? What do you say to that? That's an impossible situation. Why are you trying to get me to take sides? Now, 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 here's what I would suggest, by the way, if your kids ever ask you, if one kid comes up to you and say, hey, who's your favorite? Here's what I would tell them. I would tell them the other one is my favorite. If you're going to ask the question, I'm going to tell you the other one's my favorite. I think that's only fair. It's an impossible situation. Hey, Jesus, take sides. I call this a dumb dichotomy. Because if he chooses the side of truth in the law, it seems like he doesn't care anything about the woman. If he chooses the woman, then he violates the very thing that his father and that he created to hold up what is right. What do, what do you do? And so Jesus does the only thing you can imagine. He's, uh, uh, I'll just draw on the ground. I, I don't know. I'll just doodle a little bit. He writes in the dirt. Now, there's a lot of speculation. I've heard a lot of theologians that would, would speculate on what he and what he writes. And, and we don't know, but one, one that I thought of that came to my mind was, why would he write and what would he write in the dirt? I thought, maybe, maybe this woman feels so condemned and shamed that she won't even look at anybody in their eyes, but all she does is keep her head down looking at the dirt. Maybe Jesus wanted to get a message to her. She won't even look at anybody, I, I, I can imagine. And so Jesus writes in the dirt, and, and they won't leave him alone. Verse 7 says that they kept on questioning him. They kept on going on and on and on, it says in verse 7. And then he straightened up, and he said to him, this is one of the greatest sentences in the Bible. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And if you're somebody that doesn't like the NIV and say KJV only, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You've heard it that way. Sometimes we, we like to say that verse when somebody gets judgmental with us, don't we? It said in verse 8, again, he, he then stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I think Jesus is so brilliant that he can answer a question without even answering the question. He is the greatest politician ever. It's like, are you for the law or this woman? I'm not even going to answer that question. Stop trying to put me on a side. I'm not playing your dumb dichotomy game. Rather, he turns it around. This is so cool. And he gets every single person to look at themselves. Look, look at themselves. What he was ultimately saying was to every single person there, none of you are in any place to be judge and jury. 
He's not saying that the law isn't important. He's not saying that truth doesn't matter. He's not saying that there are not consequences and that we don't need a judicial system. He he didn't address any of that because it was an awful question in the first place. It's not even the intent of the law in the first place. It was being used in a way that was not the heart of it, that was not the heart of God. So Jesus turns it around, and there's a principle in this for you and for me that we need to wrestle with. And that is this idea that we are in no position to condemn others. None. Well, no, 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 they're doing that. Stop. You are not judge. You are not jury. I am not judge. I'm not jury. We are in no position to condemn other people. And Jesus, if we want to get so self-righteous, because we do, and we want to start calling people out, and we want to start posting on people's social media posts, and we want to start tweeting at people, before we get so self-righteous and condemning others, Jesus says, why don't you stop for just a second and look in the mirror. He says, whoever is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. I can only imagine how quiet it was at that moment. You could hear a rock drop. And it says, one by one, they all left. But I love this little detail that John put in there. Because he didn't need to. uh, And we'd still get the story. But he said, they all left the oldest ones first. I just like that detail. Why you put it in there, John? Maybe the oldest left first because they have lived more and have more problems. Or I wonder if it's because, and here's what I've discovered, the older that I get, the more my perspective changes. See, when we're younger, we tend to be very idealistic. This is the way it is. This is right. You're wrong. And then all of a sudden you get older and you meet someone that you had on the other side. And then you realize they're a real person too. And all of a sudden, your perspective changes, your heart changes. By the way, you get a little wiser the older you get. I'm not just saying that because I'm getting older. I'm just saying, like, but I think there's, there's some truth to that. And so the oldest leave, and then, and then the youngest, and, and then there's only Jesus and this woman in this moment. And I love what Jesus does next in verse 10. It says that Jesus, he straightened up, and he asked her, woman, See, he wasn't giving her name because they drug her in there and they identified her as her sin rather than who she was. By the, to- by the way, when we try to beat people over the head with truth, usually what we're doing is we're dehumanizing people. He said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither Do I condemn you? Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus makes this statement that depicts so full of his nature. In this one moment, Jesus depicts that he is full of grace and he's full of truth. But here's the beauty in it. Jesus shows the grace of God to a woman who did not deserve it. Do you know what grace is? Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Jesus extends grace to her 
in this very moment because that's who Jesus is and he represents the Father. You need to understand something about God. I think a lot of time we have a picture of God that God is ready to smite us. God is ready to punish us for doing wrong. God is, But that's not the heart of the Father. He wants to show grace to you. I believe this is a message for someone that is here today that you came to church. You were drugged to church, not by someone or a group, but maybe you were drugged to church by your guilty conscience. You've been drugged to church by shame. You're drugged to church because of the place you find yourself in and you feel like, I'm not worthy. I can't even lift my head up, but I'm here to tell you that your God is a gracious God, a loving God, a merciful God. He wants to show you grace. He doesn't want to condemn. He doesn't want to beat you down. He wants to He wants to put his arms around you and he wants to show you his grace. Grace is one of the greatest things you'll ever know about God. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can never do anything to get God to give you his grace. You you've heard that phrase, I want to be in his good graces. No. No, you can't do that because it's a gift. It's a gift. I love Ephesians 2.8. It's an incredible verse. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, but it's a gift from God. It's from God. It's a gift, but you got to receive it. Some of you came to church today, and it's time to receive God's grace. It's hard to receive God's grace when all you can think about is how you failed and you messed up and how you're not worthy. Stop. It's not about those things. It's not about you. Grace is about him showing you that, giving you that. And I want to say this. I want to be known as a community that extends grace. I want to be known as a church that is extending grace to people that are in a difficult place, a hard place, people that don't believe what I believe, people don't think like I think. I want to extend grace. I want this church community, I want this to be a place of grace. But listen, I also want to be known as a church that stands for what is true. I don't want to be one without the other. In fact, you can't have one without the other. Do you know that? Without truth, there is no grace. If there is no standard, if there is no measure of right and wrong, we have no need of grace. It's because of the truth of God that that we have an opportunity to receive the grace of God. And so Jesus in this moment shows us what does it look like for you and me to apply, to to be people that, that show grace and truth. Here's what he did. He said, I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now don't miss that last statement. Because there's a lot of people that want to say, well, Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. But he also said, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, here's what he said. He said, I don't condemn you, but I also don't condone this. I don't condemn you, but I'm not going to condone this. This is not good. Here's why he says that, because this is not good for you. It's not good for you. This is hurting you. This is hurting others. That's what sin does. I think we often think about sin in in a way that it's like me and God, and now God's not happy with me. Do you know what sin really does? Sin destroys you. Sin pulls you away from God. Sin pulls you away from other people. Sin causes pain and hurt. And so Jesus is saying, come on, I'm not going to condemn you, but listen, I can't can't condone this. You're doing this to yourself. And And so in that moment, here's what he does. 
He extends grace first, and then he leads her with truth. Please hear this. This is the application. This is what we do as a community. We need to learn to extend grace first, and then there'll be an opportunity to lead people in truth and do it in love. The problem is today, we're all about marching under our truth. We're gonna put our truth out there. I'm gonna post my truth. I'm gonna let you know about how you're wrong in my truth rather than operating out of grace first and then getting an opportunity. Listen, John described Jesus as full of grace and truth. I don't think it's a coincidence that grace went first. And the reason why we can extend grace first before we lead in truth is because God in his grace did the same thing with us. God's, that his grace is his initial response to you and me. The Bible says that even while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, even when you want nothing to do with him, he still died for you. That's his grace going first. But when you experience his grace, it will begin to change you on the inside so that you want to know his truth. So we're going to start with grace. That's how we apply this, by the way. When you're having conversations with people that you don't agree with, when people in your family are doing things that you think are morally wrong, when you're around people, you go, you know what we do? We extend grace. I'm not looking at you with condemning eyes. I'm not being passive aggressive in my phrases, just so I can kind of let you know the truth, but I'm not real. No, we need to stop that. What does it look like for us to love out of grace and lead from truth after that? I'll leave you with this thought. I want you to wrestle with it a little bit. All grace and no truth, and you stand for nothing. All truth and no grace, and you stand for no one. It's so good, I'm going to say it again. All grace and no truth, and you stand for nothing. When it's all about grace, and I don't care about truth, I don't stand for anything, no. And when it's all truth, and it's no grace, it just means you stand for no one. And that is not the heart of Jesus. So I want to challenge all of us. Listen, this is me talking to my family, my community, my church family. Can we be a community that is full of grace and truth? I'm not going to lower standards. I'm not going to not preach something that I feel like I'm supposed to preach. But I am in no way, shape, or form ever going to do it in a condemning way. Because I'm just as guilty of breaking the law. I'm just as guilty. I'm in this struggle with you. I'm trying to figure it out with you. And so this is a community where we're going to extend grace first and then lovingly lead people with truth. Amen? Come on, would you pray with me at both our campuses today? God, I just thank you for your presence. I thank you for your grace. I don't deserve it. I pray today that we would recognize that your grace is a gift. We can't earn it. I pray that we would stop trying to be so morally good. We stop trying to do things to please you so that we could be in your good graces. I just pray that today we could receive your grace. Father, I pray against a condemning attitude, a critical, judgmental spirit that often wants to attach itself to us as Christians. God, I want to be like your son Jesus. I want to live my life full of grace and truth. And it is so hard. And so I'm asking you right now, give me the grace to do it. Lord, I pray that you would help me to see people, not violators of the law,
Help me to see people out of compassion. Help me not to live with a condemning spirit, but at the same time also not to condone that which is not right. I pray, God, that you would help us learn not to make sides, to get on opposite sides, but God, how to love the way you loved. Listen, as we're praying, I, I, just, I, I believe that God wants to bring a spirit of freedom. There, there are some of you in the church, like me, that you've grown up, that have often had a judgmental, critical mindset toward other people. And I just believe right now the Spirit of God is bringing conviction to say it's time to let go of that, to see ourselves in the proper light. That I'm in no place to, to bring condemnation to anyone. And there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. God, we just leave the role of conviction to your spirit. It's not for me to do. I'm here to show love, to show grace, and to lead people in truth. Listen, I just pray maybe there's someone here today or in Lancaster watching this online. It's time for you to receive the gift of grace, the gift of salvation. Maybe you came here today and just feel like I was speaking to you, that person that you're overwhelmed by your guilt, your shame. You almost feel like I don't, I don't deserve to be here and I don't deserve God to look at me. It's not about what you deserve. It's about who God is. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself or anything that you can do. It is a gift. But listen to me, you need to receive that gift today. You need to receive the gift of, of his grace and you do it by faith. It's, by, it's when you come to the place of going, you know what? I'm trusting in you, God, with my life. I don't have all these questions answered, but today I'm going to trust in you. And I believe maybe there's someone here today, maybe it's just one person that I'm speaking to you. Right now, this, it's time for you to receive that gift, to receive salvation. If that's you today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer with me right now. Would you say, Heavenly Father, today I receive your gift of grace. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die for me. He rose again to give me new life. And so today I give my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Today I receive your grace, I receive your presence, I receive your spirit, I receive salvation. God, help me to be like you. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. So here I am today. I'm all yours. And I pray this. We pray this. In the name of our Savior, the one who is full of grace and truth. And his name is Jesus Christ. And everyone said, come on, let's thank God for his grace today. Amen.